0: This evening I'd like to speak about metta and equanimity. It's really the way that our metta practice connects with the wisdom dimension. And it's a continuation of the kind of exploration that we've been uh, making from the start. About the relationship between metta and mindfulness. And I'm going to be expressing a similar view as has been expressed, (laughs) namely that uh, metta and wisdom are deeply connected. In fact, what I want to uh, cover, explore this evening is first uh, some more about the nature of metta, how it works. Then I'd like to raise some questions about whether metta really is different from wisdom practice or mindfulness practice. It can seem that way sometimes. Then I'd like to explore equanimity, and lastly, I want to really um, bring things together by talking about how mature metta incorporates equanimity. And mature equanimity has to have metta. In other words, they go together. And it should resolve all the issues. least for a moment. <laughs> so, so first a few, a few uh, reflections on the spirit of metta and on some of the ways that, uh, that metta works with us, the way that, it, uh, that we work with metta, metta works with us. Uh, I was thinking that, um, I was thinking of this whole retreat could really be summed up in the name of one of the um, early songs by the Supremes. Some of you may remember it. um, Stop in the name of love. (laughs) That's what we're doing, isn't it? And it's actually a very profound, it's a very profound song name. I don't know if the Supremes were practicing metta Formally, but in their own way, they were. And those of you who don't know the song, I guess listen to an oldie station. It's, <laughs> it's on quite often. Um, and there's another another one of my, my really, my favorite um, writers. Uh, Thomas Merton has something to say very beautiful about about that spirit of love and how central it is, and really how central it is to uh, living in this world and actually transforming the world. As many of you may know, Thomas Merton, the great uh, Catholic uh, contemplative who lived for many years uh, at the Abbey of Gethsemane in uh, Kentucky. And I was privileged. I, I lived in Kentucky for four years when I was in my um, early thirties, and I, I spent a lot of time at the monastery. <clears throat> I would go out there as part of a, a group called the Thomas Merton Group, which and met with a lot of the uh, Catholic monks, and they all most of them had an interest in the connection of Buddhist and Christian meditation. And um, Merton died in 1968. Some of you may know his history, and. He mostly spent his time at the monastery. One of the, off the, the main reason that he would leave the monastery was to go to medical appointments in Louisville, which was uh, not too far away. And on one of those trips, you know, you can imagine it's be the equivalent of us coming out from retreat and going to a busy downtown doctor's office. And on one of those trips he had a kind of epiphany, he had a, a deep insight into sort of the nature of compassion and love. And he wrote about it in his journal. And this is, I wanted to read this to you because it's very, it's very striking. He was basically walking down an urban street and something just opened in him. And he felt attuned to the hearts of everyone, as you may sometimes feel on this retreat. He said, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin sin, nor desire, nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is on God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would fall down and worship each other. And we may feel that way sometimes um, here on this retreat. I think the metta practice opens up to those those same kind of of insights. It really works in a number of ways. And I want to talk just about three ways that metta works. Um, The first is that it really helps us to, in a way, uh, moment by moment, lead with our hearts. the second way I want to talk about is that it really concentrates our minds and our being. And thirdly, I want to talk about how it purifies, how it serves as a kind of purification practice. So there's a way in which when we do metta, whatever's happening, you know, and for many of us, there's a a lot happening. There's, There's the metta practice as a formal practice, but sometimes there For many of us, there are things coming up. There's past loss surfaces, or grief surfaces, or aspiration surfaces, and it takes us over for a little while. And in a way, um, we're really asked to respond to metta in the broader sense, not just in the sense of the formal practice, but how can I respond to this sadness with metta? How can I respond to this tiredness? with metta or in the spirit of metta. And so we can think of the metta as a kind of training in how to lead with our hearts in whatever we're doing. And we're practicing it here. We're training to do that over and over again. And it doesn't mean that we feel uh, some kind of great, um, you know, open, flowing, gushing metta. Probably most of us signed up for that by day 3 i should have open flowing gushing metta <laughs> and you know what it's day 3 <laughs> and 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 that comes at times but it's also but the, actually the more profound aspect of metta is that sense of metta in every moment or at least inclining the mind in every moment not so much saying there should be metta because remember metta as Mark said, metta is an intention practice. It's like we incline our being in the direction of love or in the direction of metta with the phrases. So I like to say it's it's an intention practice and not a production practice. We're not, as it were, saying, I should produce metta and love. And that's, that's really an important point because we often criticize ourselves because there's not... The kind of metta that we think should be there. But metta is really an intention practice. It's like knocking on the door of the heart over and over again. Even if no one answers. Even if the door opens and someone says angrily, Go home, you know, or who are you? And from the interviews, I know that sometimes the door opens and there's there are gruff voices or or worse, you know. So, so it's that kind of continual intention, where we ask ourselves, how can I be in this moment as much as possible in the spirit of metta? And it's that that we're training in, and it's that that as we uh, stay here and practice it, no matter what's happening, it gets stronger, and we get to bring it back into daily life in a in a strengthened state, you know, as a resource. It's like, some of you know, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, who sat in the redwood tree for two years. And she speaks, coming a little bit more out of Christian tradition, uh, but she says, I want to see that um, of every action, I want to ask the question, is it coming out of love? powerful practice. That's like a metta practice. You know, so the, I think we're encouraging that kind of creativity. It's really to bring that spirit of metta more and more into, um, into what we do. It's a mysterious process, this knocking at the door of metta. You know, and sometimes we knock and knock and knock, and I remember my first metta retreat, which was actually a self-retreat, and I actually had almost no instruction. I was just doing metta for a week by myself. And it, w- it was actually hard. In retrospect, uh, I'm not actually sure what I was doing. <laughs> but uh, but I, was, I was trying to incline my mind towards metta, and it felt kind of dry and somewhat mechanical a lot of the time, and I just kept on doing it. And um, After about six days of doing it, I thought, eh, yeah. Back to mindfulness, (laughs) you know, or whatever. And I was, um, I noticed there was one morning, I think it was after breakfast, and I was just going about things, and out of nowhere came a voice I love you. I was very touched. <laughs> you know, it was it was very sweet, and it was it was great. Was that it wasn't part of the formal meta? You know, it was something that was sincere, and it you know to the extent that I was trying to you know see how I was doing, it didn't count. And so it was it was, but it was mysterious. I said, oh, maybe there is something to that. You know, and Sharon Salzberg tells a very similar story where she was. Doing metta, I think maybe for the first time, and again, I think for her, this by now the one of the great teachers of metta, you know, in North America, uh, and with books and so forth. And she said her first retreat also felt really dry. So some of you may be future great teachers of metta <laughs> <laughs> in North America, uh, but she was. Um, she said I was feeling quite dry, and she actually had to leave. Uh, her retreat, as she had planned it, a little early because I think there was—it was again. I think she was doing it by herself, and there was a kind of a, a conflict in the community, and she had to go back and help deal with it. And as she was going, I think she may have been in a rush, and and she knocked over a vase on her way to going to this meeting after doing this metta and she immediately said, "You're you're such a klutz," and she. And then, but then she immediately answered, "You're such a klutz, but I love you." <laughs> and again, it was kind of similar. There's something that was ad- that was new that was added from doing the metta, even in those moments where some of the old conditioning comes back. So there's a way in which we do this this training to lead, to lead with the heart, to really uh, bring that spirit of metta in. I was, I was reflecting on a period uh, a few years ago when I did metta uh, for what uh, has been the longest time I've done metta, which was about five weeks. Uh, and there's a lot I could say about that, but one of the things that was really interesting to me was after, after some time when I, my mind was fairly uh, quiet, I started to notice every moment in which I didn't lead with the heart, and it felt off. You know, and it felt even if it wasn't major, I would be, you know, I was, I was here at Spirit Rock, and I'd be walking down the road, and I'd make some comment about someone. And it wasn't necessarily even cruel, but it might just be, oh, that person's walking with a limp. And even if it was a neutral observation, I found in that spirit of metta, I had to come back and give metta. Even for me, the neutral observation was not uh, enough. I needed to ring metta. And of course, any moment that I was judgmental towards myself or another, it's like I had to go back uh, and do double metas or something. (laughs) I don't know if that's some old, it sounds like some old religious tradition of flagellation or penance (laughs) or something. But Anyway, it was, and so we learned to lead, we learn to lead with metta. And it's not just something we do here, it's something we can do out in the, um, out in our everyday lives. um, I often go to meetings and I try to do metta and kind of lead with metta in meetings. One of my students does metta all the time. For whatever reason, she doesn't do metta so much sitting, but her time when metta just comes alive is when she's driving. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way it is. And she just is out there and she, I think she does real estate, so she's driving a lot. And she's just out there on the highways of Northern California sending Meta over the highways. You know, or another experience that I had was, was that of, uh, on this long retreat that I did, I, um, a few days before I was to leave, I needed to attend to some outside things, And so I checked my email. This is like, you can imagine, almost five weeks of Meta, and I checked, I downloaded 400 emails not recommended necessarily, but what I found was from all the time of doing metta, there was no way that I could answer an email without doing metta. And so I started this practice, which I've continued to do, of with every email, I do an internal practice of metta, I do the round of four phrases, and then I try to have in the message, in some way, um, some indication of metta, you know, like, uh, may you be well or something, for the people I write to a lot, I try to vary it, so it doesn't get too, too sappy. But it's, it feels like it's really that quality of leading with the heart that's so, that's so crucial. and It's something that we practice here, and we can really bring that out into our daily lives in a strong way. A second area that develops when we do metta is that we become more concentrated metta is a concentration practice this continual uh, repetition of the phrases and it's really that continual coming back to just the spirit of metta, it's that continual coming back uh, to let me just uh, lead with metta another moment and there's something for me very uh, relaxing almost which is that I only have one thing to do here be in the spirit of metta, and it, it kind of gathers our mind. I think you know, the, you know the word for concentration in the Pali language is samadhi, and I think concentration actually may be a misleading translation because it suggests somehow to me a kind of focused laser-like attention, and the spirit of uh, concentration certainly in metta is much more that of unification or a kind of gathering. And even etymologically, the word samadhi is connected. It's an Indo-European language, so it's connected with words like sum, summation, or uh, summary. It means kind of a, a completion or a maturity. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a beautiful way in which when we practice, we, we have that quality of just doing one thing, of coming back. And it's very, for me, it's very, very relaxing. It just unifies things. You know, in the dining hall, there's a long line. Some people are out in the rain. Just a hypothetical possibility. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some people are out in the rain. What's the response? Well, it's the intention to do metta you know, or something like that. And, and so we just keep doing that. Uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard had this wonderful... Saying that he said, Purity of heart is to do one thing, purity of heart is to do one thing, and there's a way in which that that unifies our being and it's it can be quite wonderful and as we do that as we develop more in concentration there there are certain qualities that 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 come to us there's more of a steadiness or ease uh there's a way that we relax as we as we kind of unify as we move into that uh, concentrated place or that that unified place. And it's also the access place for deeper peace and understanding and kind of the doorway to deep uh, absorptions in in consciousness that can really be uh, quite wonderful and powerful. To really be able to see very, very deeply the nature of the mind as the mind gets more, more still. For us here, uh, concentration is really helped in a few ways. It's, it's helped by coming back and doing the phrases, by having that sense of the metta as something we continually return to, that we continually come back to. It's that. Noticing I'm away and coming back. Noticing I'm away and doing that a hundred or a thousand times a day. And that builds concentration. Another really important way on the retreat that we develop concentration is by emphasizing continuity of practice, which we've talked about. And that would mean if we want to take another few steps further in concentration, give a lot of attention to the informal times. Give attention to when you stand up (laughs) after the sitting. Is the metta still going? When you go to the bathroom, when you go to the dining hall, when you eat, is the metta still happening? It's that continuity which can really uh, further our concentration. The last aspect of of metta, of the process that I want to talk about, is the way that metta uh, very often is a force for purification in our being. And we use that word, uh, and we've, you've probably heard it here, we use that in different ways. It's especially about the way that as we do metta, well, I could say it's not a linear path to bliss. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> just, just a few people. Oh, a few more, <laughs> And so it's, but it's it's actually, as Mark was saying, um, in a way, the obstacles to metta, or the obstacles tenderize us. And there's a way in which we can talk about metta as purification in two ways. One of them is, is that we touch certain aspects of our own being, which have a quality of purity to it. That quality of the the aspiration to 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 love. We touch moments in which there's, there are moments simply of kindness. And there can be a certain quality of purity there. We can touch that more and more. And the other way that there's purification is that we, as it were, um, connect with or even sometimes elicit the obstacles to metta. And if the word purification doesn't resonate with you, you, can, you can think of, we can think of it using other terms like uh, transformation, possibly. Some people, I think, may have a reaction to to words like pure or impure. But what we're talking about, really, is the way that when we do metta, there often are, what, very strong emotions can come up. We can sometimes access uh, material from the past. Sometimes uh, there can be Material in our lives which we haven't dealt with comes right to the surface. Maybe a loss or pain from the past comes there. It often manifests on the level of the body that we can actually feel uh, somehow places of tension. We can sometimes feel a tension in our heart or we can feel parts of our body that that feel tense. This is completely normal and And it's something that happens and that we can work through it. There can also be very powerful dreams, intense dreams, um, even dreams which are quite horrible. And some of you may have had dreams in which, you know, in which you're doing something horrible or you find that are quite scary and horrible, like nightmarish dreams, and that's normal. Although if you're not having them, don't worry. (laughs) I'm not I'm not trying to say normal in the sense of you should be, but if you do have them, don't worry. It's really part of the process, and there's this way that we sit here, and we, as it were, knock on the door of love, and there's a lot that responds at the door. You know, we can have, uh, we can also especially have a lot of judgments come in, and you know, and this is certainly what we hear in the interviews, that there are self-judgments, and um... Self doubting of ourselves, very, very common. And it's something that comes up and it's something that we have the opportunity to work with and to attend to with Metta. I remember the retreat that I did that I was mentioning a few years ago. There was um, one night, I remember when I woke up at three in the morning and for um, about an hour and a half, Without any thinking or summoning, I reviewed my entire relationship history. <laughs> you, know, you, know, just, you know, it was just a meta, meta, meta during the day. Three in the morning, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wake up, and there it is. I just, you know, I didn't ask to do it. I wasn't even thinking about it. It just came, and, and some of it was quite painful, you know. And it just came and was there. And then it went away, and I actually didn't think more about it. You know, so things come and they go, and the fact of something coming doesn't mean it's going to hang around necessarily for a long time. So that's an important one, because we can get scared sometimes by what comes up, you know? Um, you know that we also, in in the process of... Uh, purification, there are actually humorous things that happen sometimes, you know, we have we have these uh, times, you know, when we get so much into metta and so much into it that we even though we've said the phrases maybe for 2,000 times in the last day we can't remember we get to the second one and we can't remember what's supposed to come (laughs) you know, and it can feel very what does it feel like, it feels kind of like I don't know thick pea soup of the brain or something and it's, um, and it's quite normal we get in these places where kind of we've been saying all these things and our mind is just not working in the usual way and that's okay or we do things like we we say the phrases but they get really really confused you know which, which again can be humorous like I remember some of the ones that I came up with was my my phrases are these there may I be happy and contented May I be... uh, Let's see if I can remember them. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. May I be happy and contented. May I be safe and free from harm. May I be healthy and may my body support me, which I often say just may may I be healthy and supported because I want to get the right rhythm for my metta. And And then may I be free and live with ease. And so some of the ones that came to me, I remember... I, instead of happy and contented, I may see. I said, "May I be happy and cemented?" <laughs> I was thinking it was, you know, some, you know, some gangster, <laughs> gangster doom in the swamps of New Jersey or something, like Jimmy Hoffa or something. <laughs> you know, so, so these things happen, and we just have. It's part of the purification process, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, and we, have, we can have patience with it. And even that hum- humor is really good. Humor is actually, that's a big way that metta and equanimity get brought together, actually, okay, if I could say that. So there's a way in which, as we do this metta, we really actually get to appreciate some of the obstacles, which is a hard thing to do in our practice we get to appreciate that the whole process of opening in part goes through the territory of wounds and pain. And there really isn't much way around that. It just is part of what we do. The poet Rilke spoke about the importance, he said, of not squandering our pain, of really having our pain be something that really helps us in our growth. Some of you may know this poem. It's from the, the 10th Dueno Elegy. This is part of it. He said, let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you knights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters? And surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair. How we squander our hours of pain how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end, though they are really our winter-enduring foliage, our dark evergreen, one season in our inner year. And so we work with the obstacles, we work with the difficulties, and we also come to touch that which is beautiful, that which is what the Buddha called the brightly shining factor of mind and heart. And he linked that with metta. There are these beautiful passages where the Buddha says, let me see if I have that here, he says, luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This people who do not practice do not really understand and so they don't cultivate their minds and hearts. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit it. This, the practitioner, really understands. For them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. And in the text, the Buddha linked that luminous quality to metta. It's sometimes said that the liberation of the mind and heart by Metta, this is from the text, it says, it shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. And we touch that as we do this practice more. We touch something quite uh, actually um, an ultimate, really, um, source of shining and beauty That really is, in a way, um, indestructible. No matter what kind of uh, pain there's been, that quality of metta is present in us. And part of what we do with our practice is to uncover the territory so we can access that brightly shining part of ourselves. One friend of mine who is a therapist, he talks about this as the jewel. And he marvels at his work with people, a lot of whom have very, very, had very, very severe difficulties. And he marvels at how there's something almost indestructible in the human spirit which lets them survive and keep on going. And that can be linked with metta. It's something very deep in our being. Martin Luther King said it this way He said, There is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. And so it's there, and we're really um, inviting in a gentle way for that to be more present. And it takes sometimes special conditions for it to come out. Another one of my favorite passages from Merton is when he says that this deep quality of our being is like a shy, wild animal that only comes out when the conditions are safe. It's that deep inner quality that really requires the right conditions, but it's there. And it's something that when we know that and touch that, it's something that um, um, sustains us in every kind of situation. And that's really the direction that we go with the metta. So, metta is this wonderful, beautiful practice that we do, very powerful. challenging. And we can ask the question, as many of us do at certain moments, um, how does it connect with the wisdom practice? Because it can be confusing at times. This wonderful metta practice can seem to be very separate from mindfulness practice. You know, we use different techniques for metta as for mindfulness. You know, metta uses words, a lot of words. Mindfulness practice often is without words. Um, in a sense, we could say mm, metta practice seems warm and mindfulness practice seems cool. It can feel that way sometimes. And sometimes even it seems like the teachings are saying different things. You know, I'm not meaning here to take us too much into this, but it's actually an interesting reflection. Sometimes it seems that metta is about um, giving very personal wishes for real beings, for individual beings. And sometimes with mindfulness practice we're invited to look at things more impersonally. Look at just the flow of conditions and causes almost happening in the words, I think this is a paraphrase of Joseph Goldstein. He talks about empty phenomena rolling on endlessly. It's kind of a different perspective than netta, isn't it? You know, Uh, or we sometimes can see metta seems to be aiming at particular states, happiness, or uh, safety, or health, or ease, and so forth. And we can look at equanimity practice, and when we do equanimity practice, one of the lines that we use, a phrase like in the metta practice is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. It's as if with metta we wish for something, with equanimity practice, we say, no matter what you wish for, <laughs> here's the truth. You know, And they can appear to be a tension there. It can be, appear to be um, a difference. And so I want to talk a little bit more about equanimity and to um, maybe in a way sharpen that difference a little bit, but then at the end, we'll have a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll come back and we'll see that even though mindfulness or wisdom and metta seem to have some potentially bumpy moments in their marriage, in the end they come back and they're married and they live happily ever after. <laughs> so, don't worry. <laughs> so, so, equanimity is this uh, amazing practice. And again, as you hear this, it can appear to be quite different than, than metta. It's this wonderful practice of having a balanced mind with whatever happens. And it has this very special place in the Buddhist teachings of being, it's said, very close to the state of Nibbana or Nirvana, very close to the, we might say, the um, the opening to the sacred, if I can use that language. And and so in some of the famous Buddhist lists, equanimity is the last on every list. It's the summation. It's the last of the factors of awakening. Some of you know that list. It's the last of the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's the last of the paramis, the qualities that we develop on this path. And it's, it's this very amazing quality. And I have to say, and maybe this is my own version of connecting metta and equanimity, that I have fallen in love with equanimity. And partly, uh, I got into it a lot when I, I, I wrote a book in the last few years, which was published about a year ago. And um, it was on the connection of uh, inner practice and uh, social change work. And it was... Um, I wanted to talk about equanimity, so it was kind of an excuse to read all I could and explore and give talks on equanimity. And I just fell more and more in love with equanimity. And I've talked with Heather, and she has the same, we have the same, same, uh, <laughs> we have the same obsession, <laughs> if I could say that. And, and I think also I was reflecting that I think it has also a lot to do with my, with, uh, my father, actually, who died about two years ago. And some of you have met him because he used to come to the Wednesday class a lot. And his name is Simon. And I learned, uh, and I, th- I must think I'm still learning from him, because there were ways that he kept a balance with tremendous difficulties, um, and way more than I've been challenged with. He, as a very young man, was in World War II, and he um, experienced a lot of his uh, friends dying. He was in a very bad crash, got pretty badly injured. Um, He wanted to go to medical school, but because of the uh, anti-Semitic quotas at that time, he was not permitted to go to medical school because he was Jewish. They had quotas, very, very low numbers. Some Some of you know that. That actually didn't change until the 1960s. And so he couldn't go to medical school. And he also had a number of diseases. He had psoriasis, and he um, lost his sight when he was in his uh, uh, 40s, and he eventually became legally blind for the last um, 25 years of his life, and he also had cancer the last 27 years of his life several times, and so it was... um, and there are probably a few other things I don't remember, but it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. And I just watched this man, who happened to be my father, just keeping a certain balance. And of course, there were some ways that you know, those pains distorted things some. But mostly, there was a certain really ability to see the positive and to keep a balance. And I think I must love equanimity um, partly because I love my father. And so there's certain qualities of equanimity that we can can point to. And as I say this, you might think of these as qualities that we also develop in metta practice. You know, one of them is the quality of balance. And really, that's literally the word upeka, or for equanimity, means balance. And we cultivate balance. And we do that in our metta practice uh, over time. We grow to just be more and more balanced with whatever comes up. the writer Nyanaponika Tara that Sylvia quoted the first evening, who has this wonderful, wonderful essay on uh, equanimity and metta and, and compassion and joy. He said, equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. That's the nature of equanimity. And it's important to know that its balance is not the same thing as calm or tranquility, that we can be really, really balanced with all sorts of wild things happening. So equanimity is more like the calm at the middle of the storm, calm at the middle of the hurricane, rather than tranquility or or calmness. And so we can have a lot of things happening and still have a certain quality of balance. And we develop that balance primarily by just learning over and over again to develop balance with hard things that come our way. And so we, we learn to be balanced in our mindfulness practice, in our metta. We see all the things which take us out of balance, whether it's anger or fear or confusion or judgment. And we learn about the territory. And We learn how to be skillful with each of those qualities. And a lot of what is beautiful about retreats is they're almost like these laboratories where we get to have these sustained immersions in the human condition. And we get to really study anger. Oh, so if you have anger for several days in this retreat, it's partly a chance to really see what anger is about. If you have sadness, it's really to know it. Because once we know that well, it's different when it comes again. And it also permits us to be really of use to other people. If I know anger or sadness or fear, and I've studied it really well. I can really be of use, and I won't be scared, as it were, or uh, driven away when they have those qualities. There's a quality also of unshakability that's very much linked with balance, a sense of being able to be with that range of experiences increasingly without without the mind getting out of balance. And there's a kind of matter-of-factness that uh, one of my favorite expressions of it is in a, a haiku by the Japanese haiku writer Basho. Let me see if I can find this. this is, so it's really short, so um, don't daydream right now because you won't you'll <laughs> miss it. <laughs> so here it is. This is, for me, Equanimity Haiku by Basho. So for those of you who don't know, Basho was one of the great uh, haiku writers of the last few centuries from Japan. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. (laughs) Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. So what makes that an equanimity haiku? It's very, very matter-of-fact, isn't it? He's not saying the horse pissing near my pillow. I'm sorry if those the language upsets anyone, my apologies. We try to not do too much profanity in the Dharma hall, but <laughs> so forth. Um, but he's not saying the horse pissing near my pillow, what a drag, I better remember next time to leave the horse somewhere else away from my pillow. He doesn't say that, he just very matter-of-factly describes what's happening with a kind of balance of mind, and it's that kind of quality which we we have with equanimity. That it's um, and it really, in a way, relates to that uh, that quality as the metta gets stronger and we have touch. We we develop more and more a touch with something that is unshakable in ourselves, and it's really remarkable. That's part of what we develop in this practice. We develop an unshakability, and it can be connected with a sense of love or metta, and it gets stronger as we do this practice. And and so you can see how, if we have that connection, and we can feel it, and sometimes it comes up even when things are really hard. And I've been surprised. I've had maybe two life-threatening situations in the last uh, 20 years or so, and I was really surprised how my practice just came right there. It was like it was just, it came right to the fore And I found, even though it was really scary, and I could have actually died, one of it was related to when I was actually driving to California and I had my car was too heavily loaded. My transmission went out um, in Kansas City on a Saturday night at 8.30 at night on Interstate 70, crossing right through urban Kansas City with no breakdown lanes. And my transmission just went out and my car stopped, and I was in the fast lane with no breakdown lane at night, and I did have the thought <laughs> that it was dangerous, <laughs> and but there was something about the practice was just right there. It was real, I was surprised, it's not like I said, practice, come here, I need help. It was more like it just was right there, and there's something as we touch the depth that comes more and more to be the case. And it's a way that we can see that as we do the metta practice, it really is a kind of equanimity practice. And the last thing I want to say about equanimity is that it also is very closely connected with understanding, with wisdom, with with insight. There is a way in which it has to do with an understanding of a situation. It might be to really see a situation more carefully, to see it more fully, uh, to have a sense, a very long view of things. I'm always very inspired by uh, Dr. Arya Ratney from Sri Lanka, who in his response to the civil war in Sri Lanka gives a 500-year plan and has details for all 500 years. It's not just some model. He, has, he, he, gives, he says because the the conditions of colonialism and so forth took five hundred years to develop, we really need to give five hundred years for the resolution so this very long view and the sense of you know it's the sense of there's a kind of, the equanimity has that long view it can have a kind of patience it can also be something that uh, that maybe sees more clearly what's happening and i I think of sometimes when i've had difficulties with an individual? Do you know the way in which sometimes when you even someone close to you you have some friction or tension and then you learn exactly what was in that person's mind? Why that person did what that person did? and My experience is that when I hear that it's very hard to keep a grudge. When I really hear from the inside what that person was going through, oh I was really pressured by time and I didn't do this or didn't do that and when you know, when I found when two people really open their hearts like that, it's very hard to go to anything but metta. You know, there's, that, there's a famous phrase by uh, Henry uh, Longfellow who says, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It's a quality of, of understanding. And so I think you can see, as I've been talking about equanimity, even though I posed a kind of opposition, potentially, between metta and equanimity or metta and wisdom, they're actually, as they get more mature, they really, in a sense, integrate the other. That mature metta becomes full of equanimity. Mature equanimity has warmth. And one of the most beautiful ways that we can look at this is through a wonderful teaching Uh, called The Near Enemies that many of you know. And the Buddha basically said that the qualities like uh, loving kindness and equanimity as well as compassion and joy have their more authentic versions but they also have a way in which they um, can look like authentic metta but actually not be or look like true equanimity but not really be that way. And the Buddha called these the near enemies. And he he gave, he said that, for example, the near enemy of compassion is pity. The near enemy of metta is a kind of possessive love, we might say. And sometimes it's also said that it's worth a kind of sentimentality that kind of looks like love but it's kind of very, I don't know, embossed or something, or self-oriented. And the The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It can look like equanimity, but it's not really equanimity. And so for me, this is one of the secrets for working to develop a more mature metta, more mature equanimity, in a way we have to work through the near enemies. We have to, with metta, for example, we have to really see how much is my loving-kindness possessive, how much do I demand results, how much do I, how much am I for example, how much is my metta, uh, just trying to be nice you know um, because I actually think what I found when I really explored equanimity in detail even though the Buddha just had one near enemy, I found ten, and so I have this big near enemy list that I developed and it was kind of exciting to, you know Disco- it's feel, I don't know, it's a little bit like discovering a new star or something. <laughs> Disco- you know, oh, even though obviously people had looked at these. But, it, but no one, I hadn't found anyone who wrote about them. So I found, uh, oh, they are ten near enemies. So, so I found like there are things that look like equanimity, not just indifference, but I found that certain kinds of uh, denial could look like uh, equanimity. Or uh, a kind of complacency could look like equanimity. Or resignation you, you get a sense, could look like, okay, yeah, is I actually am really resigned to something really lousy, but I'm kind of acting like I'm a quantumist. But I'm not really, because I'm actually deeply bitter, but I'm just not going to show it. <laughs> and, you know, and they're, they're the, where I might actually be incredibly numb, and I want to look like I'm a quantumist. You know, so they're these near enemies, and I think one of the near enemies of metta is being overly nice. Niceness is actually a Buddhist disease. <laughs> hope I'm not offending anyone, but some of you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, and I think niceness should be a near enemy of metta. <laughs> so it's, there, so there, you, I think you know what I'm saying, that there's a way that we can be overly nice or overly obsequious. I haven't said obsequious probably for five years, but it just came out. <laughs> and you know that there that there are ways in which our metta can be basically be trying to look like metta or trying to look like love, but actually be serving some kind of... um, could be serving a kind of woundedness or a kind of uh, insecurity or anxiety. Niceness a lot of times comes out of anxiety, and it can look like metta. So some of what we do as we develop more mature metta is we explore those near enemies. And so it's really part of the practice that we do. It's to really keep an eye open for ways that our metta may be a little bit distorted by a near enemy. And the same thing for equanimity. We can look as we are um, working with our practice to see if there's a way in which our equanimity is turning into indifference or looks like indifference or looks like resignation or something like that. Or look, it could be a kind of intellectualization, you know, or rationalization. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm above it all and, you know, I'm really okay and it doesn't really matter because this is the way that things work. And that can be very rationalized. It can be overly intellectual because it's actually, we're a little bit afraid of touching something difficult. And so, in a way, one of, one of the ways that uh, mindfulness and metta come together is that, they, uh, is that they really appear through working through these near enemies. And one of the ways that that uh, connection is found, and one of my favorite um, uh, indications of this is found in the Chinese symbol for mindfulness. There are two characters. One of them is a character for present moment, And one of them is a character that's made up of two composite, or it's a composite of two other characters. One is house or home, and the other one is um, heart. You bring all those together, you get mindfulness is making a home for the heart in the present moment. And isn't that about that connection of mindfulness and metta? It's expressed that way. Or there's a beautiful way that it's expressed by the Buddha. Let me see where this is. The Buddha actually practiced metta even after he was reportedly fully awakened. He, he walked around a lot just practicing metta. And he said this about his, uh, his practice of metta in a way which suggests the connection of metta and mindfulness. Setting mindfulness in front of me, I abide suffusing one quarter of the world with a heart possessed of loving kindness, likewise the second with compassion. And he talks about then joy and equanimity. The whole world I suffuse with a heart grown great with loving kindness, free of enmity and untroubled, likewise with a heart possessed with compassion, possessed with sympathy and gladness, possessed with equanimity. If I walk up and down, my walking is sublime. My standing, my sitting is sublime. And he's referring to it having the qualities of the states of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, which are called the sublime abodes or the divine abodes. This is what I mean when I say that it is a sublime abiding place. So he says, setting mindfulness in front of me, I practice metta. I think I want to close with a um, part of a poem that also, to me, expresses that combination. And this is a poem by, um, by Gary Snyder. <clears throat> and this is a poem that he wrote uh, a few years ago. Let's see what this is. It's called After Bamiyan. And he wrote this after the destruction by the Taliban of the Buddha statues in Afghanistan. and He talks some about this. I won't read the whole poem, because he actually, at the end of the poem, he connects this to actually to, he was writing this in 2001, he connects it to 9-11. But I'll just read the part where he talks about this important balance. Really, it's really between metta and the heart, compassion, and wisdom. So the first past, this comes in three parts, and I'll read the first two. The first is from March 2001, after Bamiyan. The Chinese Buddhist pilgrim, Swan Swan Sang, described the giant, gleaming, painted, carved-out Buddha standing in their stone um, caverns at the edge of the Bamiyan Valley as he passed through there on foot on his way to India in the 7th century. So These statues were there in the 7th century. Last week, they were blown up by the Taliban. Not just by the Taliban, but by women in nature denying authoritarian worldviews that go back much further than Abraham. Dennis Dutton sent this poem around Not even under mortar fire do they flinch. The, Buddhis, the Buddhas of Bamiyan take refuge in the dust. And, he, and Snyder adds May we keep our minds clear and calm and in the present moment and honor the dust a little more of the equanimity perspective. He adds another passage a month later. From a man who writes about Buddhism, dear Gary, well, yes, but the manifest Dharma is intra-samsaric and will decay. So it's again, it's kind of the equanimity perspective. I wrote back, ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide for to pass off the suffering of others because they are merely impermanent beings. Issa's haiku goes, and then he gives it in Japanese and translates it, Issa's haiku, and Issa was a haiku writer, I think of around 1800, if I remember. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Snyder says, that and yet... The and yet is the compassion, the metta. The first part is the impermanence. I'll read it again. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. That and yet is our perennial practice, and maybe the root of the Dharma. Thank you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.